This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. We joined by Jeff Winninger, who's the head of equity strategy, and our co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, Jeff and I are registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views are guests. Are their own and not those affiliates. We're going to have a great show talking about inflation. Um, our guest, John Davi from Astoria, has some new inflation fighting strategies that we're going to talk about. Um, and Professor Siegel, we know, has been talking about inflation for some time. Professor, we got the key inflation gauges. Curious to get your response, reaction. A lot of narrative that inflation has peaked. Uh, and so I'm curious to hear what is your yeah. thoughts? Well, uh, there, there was just one little piece of, of the, of the um, news that uh, was encouraging. Uh, the CPI core uh, was expected up by half, came in three-tenths, and core is more important. Um, and, and that gave a lot of people, uh, you know, that, that caused what was caused a relief rally, uh, uh, that it wasn't worse. Um, and that's why you saw the market up on Tuesday morning. It didn't last, though. Uh, the PPI, I thought, was very bad. Uh, the the overall was 1.4%, uh, up from 1.1. Uh, the core was way above uh, expectations. So although the core CPI was lower, core PPI uh, was way above. And uh, those, those, those are not good. We also had uh, less important, but we also had uh, export uh, uh, and import price indices uh, that that came out uh, yesterday that were also um, very very strong. So um, I I when you say peaking, you know, <laughs> uh, so you know the year over year, uh, you know, went up to eight point five percent. Okay, maybe that's the peak. But are we going to feel good if if next month it's eight four and the next month it's eight three and by the end of the year it's seven uh, nine? I mean. That's not what I call any victory. So you know, just being a peak is is is. I see I see a lot of inflation in the pipeline. We've already talked about the fact that uh, that housing costs are not in uh, fully in uh, the uh, the core price indices uh, at this time. We see commodity prices. I mean, you saw what happened to oil. Oil bounced right back over a hundred. Uh, natural gas is continuing to rise. Um, I don't see a lot of things that cause me encouragement, even though technically we might not see 8.5%. It's a question of how far, how fast is it going down? And I do not see it going down uh, very fast. Um, retail sales uh, were in line. It was revised uh, upward for the month of February. And even though, uh, you know, markets are closed today, it's not a government holiday. And actually, uh, we got some data. This morning, um, and what well, big surprise, uh, the New York uh, manufacturing for April, and that's the very first April uh, indicator uh, that we have, was way above expectations of 24.6. I haven't had time to actually delve into it um, uh, why, but it was expected to be up one, and it was up 26. Now, this was an index that was down 11.8 uh, the previous month, so uh, it is a bounce back. Industrial production. Uh, was way above expectation and revised up dramatically for uh, the month of February, um, quite a bit. Uh, so uh, uh, there's there's a lot of strength in the economy, although GDP, the first quarter, uh, it ended. Uh, the estimate won't come out to the end of April. The estimate is actually 1% or below, uh, between a half and one. Early estimates of the second quarter are two. Not great, but... You know, the long-run average, pretty much of what the Fed thinks long-run potential is, I think actually it might be higher than two. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're only in the first couple of weeks of uh, of April. 
you saw uh, in the bond market really rallied on that CPI core um, number. And it stayed low, um, you know, didn't rise that much the rest of the week and stayed in the 270 range and had been up at, at, at 280. But uh, after uh, that rally that uh, NASDAQ, when the rates went down, as we see on Thursday um, uh, and, uh, and at the end of uh, and Wednesday, we, we, we really saw the tech uh, again sell off. Uh, it isn't back to its February lows, but um, it's. It starts don't look great. Uh, so uh, peaking or not, there's a technical peaking, maybe. Uh, but that's not as important as how fast it's going down. And my read is that it's not going down very fast. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that was going to be your conclusion. Um, when you think about what the Fed was going to do through the rest of the year, um, I think people are coming towards 50 and 50 in May and June. And, and do you think they have the fortitude to keep going at 50 throughout the rest of the year? Is it all to be data well, dependent? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I think 70, well, they should do 75. They won't. I mean, you know, while, while Chris Waller comes on now, you know, he's, uh, you know, working at the Federal Reserve St. Louis along with Bullard. And, and in fact, they work together. And, you know, Bullard is the biggest hawk on the committee. Waller, Wallace uh, was was more uh, measured, but he said we should get our we should get up to neutral as fast as possible. Well, neutral according to them is two four. <laughs> well, you know uh, they're not uh, you know I mean that's kind of the expectation for year end. I don't know, if, you know, eight months from now is as fast as possible. Uh, but he well, he was calling for fifty. Uh, I think fifty is absolutely with the PPI. Um, there's no question fifty. There's no more real price indicators before the May 4th meeting. Um, so um, uh, I think, uh, you know, barring, you know, some dramatic, uh, you know, uh, uh, political events of, uh, or, or uh, geopolitical events, I think 50 is in the cards. Uh, you know, going forward, you know, you're, you're getting more PPI. If it goes down slowly, people are going to say, you know, we've got to keep that 50 up. I mean, you know, you're not if you're not squeezing inflation unless you're above neutral. Now, the truth of the matter is, I believe neutral is actually below two four. Uh, um, uh, uh, I think it's probably around one five to two. But you got to get well above neutral if you really want to squeeze the inflation. Of course, another thing we're going to get uh, uh, on the fourth Tuesday of the month. So I think it's a, a, uh, going to be a week from Tuesday. We're going to see whether the moderation of money supply growth. Uh, that we saw for the month of February. Now, you know, money supply is a very lagged in- indicator, uh, continued in the month of March. That's going to be important for me to also look at uh, the potential for the, the slowing of uh, inflation. One of the charts I saw going around this week was that sort of bullish versus bearish sentiment from individuals dropped to a record low going back to the 90s, like the least amount of bulls, even even lower than during the pandemic, which it seems like shocking. Uh, how do you read sentiment here? Like, do you think it's that bearish of sentiment and, and well, sort of sets up for a better year end? I, you know, I, well, you know, remember we used to follow the bull bear indicator. I have yeah. not followed it very recently. Um, um, uh, you know, we have mixed earnings. The banks are writing down uh, some of their assets. That's, Cause some of their earnings don't get bank write downs have to be put in operating earnings. Um, uh, all, you know, uh, uh, even on, on, on uh, caused by capital losses. While in other firms, it would not be an operating earnings. So some rising interest rates, if they have long term instruments, as causing some losses. There've been write offs on on Russia. Now you know, will they eventually come back or not? In what form? Uh, so there's been some impairment on the on 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 the banking side. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, the news from Delta on the earnings side was, I mean, you know, I mean, he said he's never seen demand for uh, air uh, flights as he has for this summer. And, uh, you know, the airlines have rallied dramatically. Of course, they sold off when 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 oil went way up. Uh, but they, they were one of the strongest sectors uh, that we saw. I still think earnings are going to be good because firms are still on the whole able to to put those prices up along with costs. Yesterday I was in New York uh, with in a conference, um, uh, and afterwards we went out to dinner at the Gramercy Park, 
This is one of the most expensive places they treated the conference. And this is a Thursday night. Uh, it's not a cheap place. And every seat was taken. People are spending money. And uh, 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 I think the economy is, is going to con- continue uh, to, to, to grow as a result this year. I wish I was there with you, Professor. I'm still in Florida, but uh, any other, any yeah. other, is a, is a big, big event for you. Any, any uh, things that you it would highlight It was very interesting. I mean, I, uh, uh, again, this was an event uh, in honor of Andy Lowe's book, uh, uh, In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio, which I feel very honored to be one of the 10 people that were named as the best advisors uh, um, in terms of trying to structure the portfolio. I answered the question, is value dead? And I said, no. I said it was on life support in the, in the ICU in December, but it seems to have come off life support in the last three months. And we talked about that issue. Bob Merton talked about very interesting issues about target funds, and people are, are, are not looking at streams of earnings. They're just looking at volatility narrowly, and it's not what the goals should be. Um, uh, and Charlie Ellis was sort of the, the guy who gave a lot of just sort of folk wisdom of how you should you know, think about the uh, portfolios and, uh, you know, not try to outsmart the, the market. It was a, it, it was a, it was a fun, a fun event to be at. And I was very, very happy to be, be at that um, uh, event. Very good, Professor. I think have a good Passover. Happy, uh, happy weekend. Thanks Thank for, for joining us. You the show. too. And uh, yeah, happy Easter Passover to all our listeners. And uh, we will, uh, of course, check in next week also. Sounds great. See you, Professor. Let me turn over the conversation. We've got Jeff Winger, Head of Equity Strategy uh, at Wisdom Tree on my team. We also have a, a return favorite guest of ours, John Davi, Founder, Chief Investment Officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. He's been a, a longtime Wisdom Tree friend and, and client, and now has got some of his own ETFs in the market, as well as managing uh, a portfolio, sort of an OCIO capacity for advisors. John, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Great to be here, guys. Thank you. Uh, let me give you a chance to respond to anything you heard from the professor. What's your view on the inflation numbers, and uh, have we peaked? Any commentary you would give around uh, that current inflation dynamic? Sure. So, um, And I'm actually still in Florida, too, from the ETF conference. I probably spoke more in the last two days than I have in the last, you know, six months, just seeing everyone from the conference. Um, so, uh, you know, I have a little bit of a sore throat, but, you know, look, I think this idea that like inflation, you know, was going to be transitory, like we never subscribed to that. We never believed it to the point that, you know, we went ahead and launched an ETF because we thought that there'd be value, you know, kind of having this hedge in your portfolio. But I kind of agree with Siegel He's had, you know, an amazing call, um, you know, and, and, and so what? Like if, you know, CPI or PPI goes from like 8.5 to 8.3, like that's still not good. So I think there's a lot of pain out there. Like, the you know, Siegel going to that restaurant, like, you know, that that's a small sliver of the U.S. economy. Like there's a lot of people out there that, you know, don't, you know, it's it's like the 1% versus the 99%. So, you know, inflation going up eight, nine percent a year, unless your portfolio or your wage is going up that much, you know, you're in real trouble. And, you know, just, you know, if you go in the everyday streets, I mean, we, we have one of our employees at, at Astoria that his rent in Manhattan's going from, you know, 3500 a month to 8000 And it's like, you know, you got like wow. one month to like figure that out. So um, it's a real problem, inflation. So I think it's going to be a long time where it, it's going to go anywhere back trend line, to be honest. So we're still very much pushing for inflation edges in, in our client portfolios. John, we were, we were retweeting some people this morning that were saying they, it, things are easing up on the trucking side. That had been the, the whole question mark, right? You had monetary inflation, but you had the supply chain issue. I mean, how much of this is the supply chain and is it clearing up? You know, potentially a little bit, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, the oil and gas, you know, what, what happened with Russia, Ukraine was like kind of throwing gasoline on the fire. So, I expect that it's going to be a problem. You know, here's the analogy I, I like to give, Jeff. Like, you're trying to buy a new car. You're paying, you know, five grand above sticker price. You know, if the demand is there, like, why do they – what incentive does the car dealer have in order to drop it back to flat MRC price? Like, it's just – you know, if the demand is there and they're able to get away with charging higher prices, 
you know, why do you think that, you know, prices are going to come down? So I, I think I'm an inflation hawk. I, I, I've been a hawk for a couple of years now, and I think it's going to be with us for the next few years. You know, once a genie comes out of the bottle, it's, it's really hard to bring it back on. So, And it has all sorts of other portfolio construction debates and topics, you know, kind of, you know, what I've been saying is like, you know, where do you want to be on this duration curve? Because, you know, the Fed is going to have to hike short end rates up just to kind of combat this inflation. So it has huge portfolio implications, you know, 60-40 model. Um, you know, what does this mean for kind of, you know, riskier investments, whether it's high yield bonds, whether it's digital assets. So I think this conundrum that we're in is going to have like big portfolio construction, you know, issues for years to come. Well, yeah, let's go there. In the 60-40, I mean, you're, you're serving at, a, at Astoria as you run model portfolios for clients. And you, in a standard 60-40, what are you doing today versus what you might have done historically? Um, how do you see the role of these inflation-type hedging strategies and alternatives? What are they? Um, how do you fit that in? So so what we've been doing at Astoria Advisors is, so about two years ago, we, we kind of you know, economics 101, supply and demand curves, you know, we, we just thought that we'd have a problem here. And we said, let's put 10% of your 60-40 model in this inflation-sensitive basket of securities. And, you know, if inflation rises, you know, this will kick in and it'll add incremental, you know, alpha to your portfolio. And, and you know, better to be lucky than smart. So our clients have been in these inflation hedging strategies, you know, for, for the better part of the last, you know, 18 months. Um, and we had so much conviction that we went ahead and launched the CTF and we partnered with Access Investments. They have a deep pedigree in bringing institutional caliber strategies to, to the marketplace. And we're not going to talk about the fund. I know we're not allowed to. But you know, the point is that I feel like we were front and center in this idea of, you know, having multiple asset classes in the portfolio. So. I think if you look at that 60-40, there's a lot of deflation risk in that model. So you've got a lot of tech and growth exposure because most of the market cap weighted indices, you know, they're obviously in, in, you know, I'm preaching to the choir what you guys are wisdom tree, but, you know, the the 60-40 the model has way too much tech and growth exposure to the point that, um, you know, if rates go down, like find that model portfolio does well because growth stocks go up, nominal bonds go up, but, you know, what we've had, you know, really since March of 2020 was, you know, rates have gone up and values have performed growth. So I like these inflation fighting strategies. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you want to be trimming your nominal bonds. Um, you know, we own very, very little bonds in our portfolio. We're trying to, like, hedge our equity risk by using alternatives. So things that kind of are, you know, S&P-like returns, um, but, you know, lower volatility, lower standard deviation. So, if S&P standard deviation is about 15, you know, we're hoping that our alternatives can be more like an 8 to 10 ball. So whether it's option overriding strategies, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I think like our alternatives tend to be in that bucket of like gold, gold equities, gold miners. Um, there's just not a lot in bonds that you want to own when inflation goes up and rates go up. So the last 20, 30 years, we haven't had much inflation We've had rising, we've had fallen rates. So, you know, when you look at these bond returns, I mean, year to date, the ag index is down, you know, 6%. You know, investment grade corporate bonds had their worst quarter since 1980. I mean, you just can't get enough of these stats about how horrific these bond returns are. So I think that that's John, our vantage point. John, that's is, the thing is, it's, it, John, the standard and poor's 500 has been having a rough five or six months. Bonds, as you just pointed out, what was that in the first quarter like? The, the third worst quarter for the Barclays Ag on record. And I asked somebody this yesterday. I said, I was told my whole career that rising rates was supposed to smack gold. And gold has been doing just fine through through all of this. I, maybe it's Russia, Ukraine, but what, what's your take on that situation? You know, gold, I think as, you know, Fed funds, and, and I'm an advocate of the show, and I've been following for a while, and Siegel's talking about 3% on the Fed funds, and it's going to get trickier for gold as, as rates go up because, you know, there is going to be an opportunity cost for kind of owning gold. But, you know, as a, as a small allocation as part of like an inflation sensitive strategy, you know, I'm, I'm certainly okay with it. I think gold would be a lot higher if you didn't have, you know, all this money flowing to crypto assets and crypto funds, which 
I mean, let's face it, crypto has been a very disappointing strategy. Um, so gold, in theory, should be a lot higher if you didn't have this bucket of assets that have been going into, like, you know, crypto markets. Um, so, but, you know, the, I think that gold could struggle just from the standpoint of, like, you know, rates being, you know, rates should be going up pretty dramatically in the next, you know, six to 12 months. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking to John Dove. You have Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Also with us, Jeff Winninger, Head of Equities at Wisdom Tree. Um, John, let's talk about some of the sectors that you do think. We just talked about gold as one of the sectors for inflation hedging. Um, you have a number of sectors you look at. If you were to say there's one set, I mean, we go through it, all, all, all four of the sectors you tend to like for inflation, but let's it, it, maybe start with one. What, what would be your sort of top, certainly energy is the top performer this year. Is that the best sector now for inflation hedging? I, I think so, Jeremy. And, and, you know, kind of what I like to say with energy stocks is that, I mean, first of all, the P-E ratios are, you know, very low, right? So you're talking about single-digit P-E ratios for a lot of these, like, oil and gas exploration companies. Um, you know, the overall, like, sector index is, you know, maybe 12, let's say, which is still far lower than S&P, which is, you know, 20, 21, depending on if it's forward or, or historical P ratio. But, you know, oil and gas gives you, like, this real nice portfolio diversifier because it actually serves as um, a geopolitical risk. So, you know, the wonky term is that it's got, like, positive skewness in the market. So when you've got, like, an Ukraine gets invaded, um, you know, what goes down? Stocks go down. So stocks, generally speaking, have, you know, uh, negative skewness. So they kind of tend to have this left tail risk. Whereas, you know, energy stocks, you know, as we saw this year when when there was an invasion, energy actually went up. So it, it's got this really nice, like, portfolio um, diversifier. So energy, if you look over time, when inflation goes up, CPI goes up, PPI goes up, that's the one sector that has the most efficacy versus rising inflation. Um, there's a couple other sectors too. Banks, you know, will also be sensitive. Uh, industrial stocks, material stocks. So, you know, I, I think like if you were trying to design a strategy that was going to not only like hedge against inflation, but benefit. So use that word inflation fighter. So I, I sometimes see funds use like, you know, corn and Bitcoin and you know, commodities and commodities, depending on which commodity you look at, you know, have, has done well for sure. Um, but, you know, like as a traditional quant, quantum mental analyst like like me, you know, I, I just I, I, I'm able to look at the cash flow discounted and look at P ratios and I can get a lot more comfortable with it. So, um, you know, we love commodities, too. You know, we're coming back from the CTF conference and you know, Dunlop was on stage talking about, you know, 40, 50 year charts of the like commodities versus S&P versus bonds. And, you know, the truth, Jeremy, and, and there's a lot of academic research out there that'll say commodities do better than stocks, but those academic research reports, Jeremy, they never really go at the sector that's always looking at like S&P. So yeah, if you just come, you know, analyze commodities versus tips versus, you know, S&P, you know, yes, you're going to say commodities have historically done better. Um, but I, I think, you know, part of the success we've had a story is just leaning on those sectors and in particular the energy because, you know, it's just I started my career, Jeremy, and energy stocks were 20 percent of the S&P. They, they were, you know, two, two and a half percent last year. And now it's about three and a half percent, you know, and, and, and so a, it's cheap. And then you just got this massive hedge and, and just this benefit from higher inflation and higher geopolitical risk. And I would say, you know, if anything, geopolitical risks. Um, you know, seem to be increased and not decreased. And so we, we really do like energy sector. And last point I'll make on that is that, you know, you get like stable cash flows, you got like a nice dividend yield, you've got like actually like high expected earnings growth, right? So energy sector actually has like higher growth than like tech sector. And I don't think most people realize that. So when Jeff and I were born in 1981, I think Jeff, you were, we were born in the same yeah. year. Um, we um, oil got up right before that oil got in throws of the bubble got up to 30 percent in the S&P energy stocks. And now we've had like the anti bubble and it's down to three percent. So it's crashed over the last 40 years as, as everything else sort of dominated. 
uh, sort of very interesting. As John, when you think about the factors that you use, you also you talk about quantum mental, and so you have some of this macro sensitivity. It's a great diversifier today, negative correlation to the broad market. What are the factors, quant factors you look at within energy to pick your stocks that you, you like? So, so, so that's interesting. Um, so we like to like, you know, one of the premises of the story is that we'd rather be more diversified across factors as opposed to being like all in on just one factor. Um, and that's just kind of like our due diligence and just us being like, you know, kind of quant and not kind of making one big, macro call. So, you know, when we pick our stocks, we tend to lean on a couple of factors. One is just valuation. Second is momentum, quality, growth, and then sensitivity to CPI. So within evaluations, we tend to lean on like price to book value and forward PE estimates. So it's basically like half and half in that one factor. Momentum, we like to look at average volume over the last six months. Quality is uh, return on average invested capital. Uh, growth is, um, some, uh, is a peg estimate and then uh, estimate revision. And then sensitivity to CPI is a slope in the change of the local CPI versus the excess return of a stock over the local index. So all that said, it's an equal-weighted approach. It's basically, you know, 20% across those five factors. Um so this is not just me saying, okay, like let's pick these ten energy stocks because they got a low P ratio. This is combining, you know, valuations with momentum, quality, growth, and then you know, ha- has it actually demonstrated sensitivity to CPI? So it's a fairly in-depth, you know, quant approach, um, and we do that for, you know, the energy sector, the industrial sector, the material sector, and then the the, the bank sector. So. Um, that's kind of like our background. I spent you know first ten years of my career in quantitative derivative research, building a lot of quant uh, stock models, and you know looking at ETFs as well. But just you know that's kind of our bread and butter is just living within that facts database and just looking at a bunch of different ways to kind of cut up lists of stocks. John, I, I can't let you on the call without without asking you whether or not Jay Powell's going to break something. <laughs> we. We were pulling up the chart the other day. Look, the, the three-month bill hasn't moved yet because it only that moves with Fed funds. But the two-year note um, has already boldly gone a couple hundred basis points or so in a matter of six months' time. And we were looking at that data. We had that same order of magnitude as the six months into October 87, wink, wink, which is uh, not exactly something that's heartening. And the other six-month window, John, was uh, into 1994 when Orange County blew up. Um, so the question is, you know, Jeremy made a reference to 50 bips at this meeting, 50 bips at the next meeting. Everybody's talking about 25 bips thereafter. Couple hundred, maybe 250 inside 2022. Are these guys going to break something? Well, you know, um, I think my personal experience with the Fed is that they generally are always behind the curve. So that that's an often repeated you know, phrase in the marketplace, I just don't really see a path for them to land the plane softly. Um, and I'm going to sound very bearish. And, and I think, you know, we're very bearish on bonds. We're very bearish on long duration assets. We're very bearish on tech and growth stocks. We're kind of super bullish on like value, you know, inflation sensor strategies, commodities. But Jeff, like if, if, the, if there's a crash landing, it's hard to see a scenario where, you know, not all asset classes. Where it's hard to see a scenario where all asset classes you know, don't go down simultaneously. So that's the concern I think I have is that, you know, like we're so far behind the curve, and you know, there's all these charts out there, and you produce a lot of great charts on Twitter when you overlay CPI and Fed funds, and Fed funds is you know 30 bips and CPI is you know 8%. So the Fed really does need to kind of jack up rates like the way Siegel's been talking about for months and then quarters now on the show is that, you know, we just should be a lot higher. So I think, you know, between Fed rate hikes and unwinding the balance sheet, it's, it's possible and we need it, right? Like the average American needs to be able to put, you know, something at the bank and get risk-free and get 4 or 5% because their rents are going up 20%. Groceries, shopping is up 20%. So it's a real conundrum, and I, I just don't see a patch of 
um, where the Fed actually lands the plane softly. Uh, it, it, you know, I think we're going to be talking about a recession probably next year. The market looks ahead. So, you know, maybe Q4 of this year, you start to get S&P wobbly again. Um, but no doubt Jeremy's chart that he retweeted with, you know, the all-star chart um, showing how bearish sentiment is. But, you know, the bearish sentiment, I would say, is because we've had, you know, a, a crash in the first quarter in terms of bonds. And, you know, the Ukraine stuff really scares people. Like, we're not financial advisors. Our clients are financial advisors, but their inclines are very sensitive when they see war and just the horrific things. So I think the sentiment kind of lines up with what actually has happened between these horrific images and then the price action in the marketplace in Q1. We, we need to take a break. It's going to be very, I mean, what's, for the clients, I mean, I think what's interesting is some of the more conservative, you thought you were entering into a more conservative portfolio with longer duration bonds and equities the more quote-unquote aggressive portfolios are the ones down the least in the sense if you had dividend-paying stocks in the sense like versus tech stocks, you might be up on the year um, versus sort of any bond-sensitive portfolios down. So very interesting dynamics that we have going on. We're going to be continuing this conversation. we got Jeff Winninger, head of equity strategies with me at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, who's behind the markets. We've got John Davi, who's the founder, chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors talking about the, the numbers of the week, inflation, the long-term implications, and we're just talking about the energy sector at the first half of the program. John, as you think about, you know, we're coming into earnings season, uh, we're starting to get some reports. As, as you think about what you think you expect to see from some of your inflation sectors, how are you thinking things are coming in, financials in particular, with these yield curve uh, what are you seeing? What do you expect to see? And, and any other commentary you might like to make on that? Yeah, so, you know, what's interesting is that when you look at the S&P and everyone looks at the S&P earnings and, you know, they've been, um, you know, I think it's a, it's it's disappointing in the sense that, you know, last year we had a bull market in earnings, bull market, you know, in general in the price and bull market in terms of liquidity. You know, this year is the opposite, right? Like earnings are not going to be as good. We're taking liquidity out of the system. The economic data is trending down. You know, when you look at these inflation-sensitive sectors, energy, bank stocks, industrial stocks, um, you know, the earnings actually a really, really good story. So for, for Q4, like 28 of 35 stocks that I monitor have, have beat, um, you know, have announced earnings, and they beat their earnings on average by about 47%. So that's a very, very different picture compared to, like, S&P, but, you know, no doubt it's it's the bar was lower in, in some of these energy sectors and material sectors. And perhaps the bar is a lot higher in the tech and the growth uh, sector, which dominates S&P. So there's a real good earnings story going on, uh, you know, in, in the in the cyclical space. And you know, I mentioned energy. I mean, it really it's it's very attractive. The valuations below earnings growth on a five year basis is the highest out of any sector. Um, you know, the stocks have beaten their earnings. So, you know, there's a good ma- macro story in the energy sector and a good micro story, too. So, um, you know, we just haven't had that in the energy space for, for, for years. So I'm, I'm kind of very excited about what I see in the cyclical space. And um, we'll see what happens as the broader market starts to announce earnings, you know, in the next couple of weeks. And, John, there's been uh, talk in some circles. I know I've certainly been all on, on this thesis. So we'll see if it plays out where there, wherein there's a margin pinch um, on account of what you're saying here. This inflation doesn't go away. You can't pass 100% onto the end consumer. Um, you're talking about cyclicals. Uh, discretionary is just absolute carnage in consumer discretionary. In sharp contrast to new highs in consumer staples. So the question is, is, does that continue? And is discretionary telling us that the yield curve inversion of March 29th, maybe it's right? Yeah, well, that's I think that's now the trend is like where people are starting to rotate into these like staples uh, stocks and utility stocks as, you know, the curve inverts and, um, you know, whether it was a head fake or, or not. But I think it's it's pretty obvious that we're going to have a yield curve inversion that stays inverted. Um, I know after the Fed comments, you know, last week the curve inverted and went positive, 20 bips. But you know, like if I'm designing a sector portfolio, I would kind of be long cyclicals and I would hedge out, you know, some of that risk by buying like utilities and staples 
Um, I would really be light on like the tech and growth uh, sec- segments of the marketplace, but you know we don't really go down too much at the sector levels in our you know in our broad market portfolios. We tend to stay at the index level and asset class level. But I think that um, you know you're going to see more and more interest and in, in skewness towards like the staples and the utilities of the world as opposed to the no more cyclically oriented. Uh, you know, consumer discretionary or the, the tech and growth sectors. I, I think that's one of the reasons why high dividend stocks have done, I mean, sort of double digits positive this year when the NASDAQ down double digits is because it's sort of exactly the barbell you talked about. Like you look at high dividend sources, it's got energy, it's got materials, it's got industrials, and it's underweight tech, it's got staples, it's got, you know, it's sort of very interesting on the factor sorts the high dividend quintile, top quintiles is sort of best performing. I, I want to come back to the question, John, on commodities. Um, it's, it's one of the topics we, you know, you sort of talk about a little bit as sort of supporting energy being tied to the commodity sector. We talk materials. The general trend, you know, if you look at the 60, 40, and, and people have been doing stocks and bonds, commodities had a little bit of a run a decade ago in terms of getting more institutional adoption. You you have some background at being Morgan Stanley and the institutional team. What's your sense of people looking at commodities? Um, do you view things will be changing in light of what's happened in the last uh, 18 months? And um, any other commentary you have there? Well, you know, the interesting thing about commodities um, is that, you know, actually you get paid to kind of own them at this point. Like, there's no, you're getting a rebate. So when these futures roll, you know, historically, like you've had to actually pay premium in order to kind of own the physical commodity. But now you're actually getting um, you're, you're getting it's a, it's a net benefit to you, the holder. So that to me is I mean, look, it's, it's from that standpoint, it feels like a no brainer. Like where it's it's proven to be a hedge against inflation. You get paid to be long the commodity. Um, now, with that said, I mean, commodities are very difficult to pick. And I certainly don't have the expertise, so we we envision more of like a broad-based basket approach, uh, as opposed to like just being all in on like corn or nickel or copper or just gold. And we've touched a little bit about gold earlier before, but just the broad-based commodities, you know, like you see the fund flows in ETFs, some of the larger broad-based commodity ones are really taking in quite a bit of assets. So I think you'll have more flows and more interest. Um you know, what I find shocking, uh, to be honest, Jeremy, is like there's all this money going into crypto and you start seeing like crypto futures, you know, be launched. And, you know, that means institutional investors are looking at it um, and all this venture capital, private equity money going into like crypto companies. But at the end of the day, just these boring commodities like, you know, you know, pork bellies and corn and just all that stuff actually massively outperformed this year, right? Outperformed, you know, the Bitcoin and crypto. So I just, like, it's just, it's inevitable. Like when all the, when the pendulum swings one way, it's like what's on the other side of that pendulum, that's going to work, right? So it's the born industrial precious metal commodities, you know, um, you know, so, so that, that's what I find comfort in that, that this stuff tends to kind of mean revert. I'm going to tease a conversation next week. I think we have a good surprise guest coming to talk. I'll give a tease. Hot commodities. Uh, we'll see if people figure out who that is. But, the um, John, the, the interesting question, you made the point that I've been making a lot, um, maybe not an accident, but you know, I wrote a paper called New Regime in, in Commodities and made the exact point you did, the, that you're being paid. It, you know, For the last two decades, it costs you 7% a year to roll these futures and you're now getting like double digit roll yields. It's like very different dynamic uh, across the commodity curve. People used to poke fun at the, the oil fund for rolling futures and how much it lagged for much of the decade. And now I haven't seen a single person write the story on how the, the oil futures ETF are outperforming spot by a significant amount over the last year. Where is that story? Well, let's not write it because right now we're benefiting from owning it. So the man, the more it gets written, then the the more it evaporates. Um, right, right. But but all joking aside, though, you're, you're actually right. <laughs> I told the Bloomberg people yeah, to write the story too. I was I was giving them the hint. <laughs> yeah, I mean, put it this way, Jeremy, at the ETF conference, right? How many panels were up there talking about inflation or commodities versus like all these other 
you know, mainstream topics, you know, it's just active management, ESG, you know, crypto in your portfolio. So that all bodes well. And, and look, when I yeah. look at broad-based commodity ETFs, you know, we can't mention tickers, I know that, but, you know, up 27, up 35 in one quarter. I mean, that's really, really impressive. Um, but we got a long ways to go because they were ignored for 10 years, right? And still, you know, when I look at portfolio, and this is why I love what I do because, you know, we actually physically manage models and, and portfolios for other financial advisors. And I've, I've, I, we, we have thousands of portfolios and we've analyzed another four to 5,000 portfolios. And every portfolio we look at is the same. It's overweight, you know, long duration assets, overweight tech and growth, underweight commodities. I mean, very few of them, Jeremy, if this answers your question point blank, very few of them where we inherit them actually have commodities. We're the ones that actually yep. go in there and say, look, Let's put some inflation-sensitive assets in there, right? Let's put commodities, right? Two to three percent is not going to really make or break you, and you get this nice call option on inflation. So, I think we've got unfortunately, most ways to go on the commodity most trade. people like to write. Most people like to write negative stories. I mean, I remember going to um, lunch with a reporter. I won't say the paper, but they, you know, they were asking all sorts of questions. And actually, they, the questions were about a gold miners fund that was doing a rebalancing and 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 some issues with an index tied to that. And the comments were, I was trying to defend the ETF structure, and they're like, "Well, we're not going to be ETF.com and just write puff pieces. They just want to write the negative story." But the you know, it's it's interesting um, that you know, nobody's pointing this out on commodities. Let me reintroduce our guest. We're talking with John Dobby, CIO, a story advisor. We've got Jeff Winninger, head of equity strategy. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Jeff, I, I sort of interrupted there. You want to go ahead? Oh, no. I, well, I wanted to see because John's making some references to the, the big conference in Miami. I want to make sure people know that what that was, was that's the big thing. The SMS, especially ETF people, we go down there. That's the big deal every year. And I wasn't there this year. And so sometimes you, it's like the old, it's like the 2005 house flipping conference where you retrospect say, oh, it was time to get out of housing back then. So the question I have, John, is what was that thing down at the conference where you're saying, oh, man, they're doing a lot of talking about such and such asset class. And and, uh, the, and when I have breakout sessions, everybody's still skeptical about X, Y, Z asset class. Did you get any of those vibes down there? What was the main league at the conference? Yeah, I think you're asking me for like a contrarian indicator, um, which, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think like, you know, spot Bitcoin, all this emphasis on crypto. And look, to be honest, Jeff, I'm pulling for crypto. I own a small allocation, whatever the global market portfolio is, half percent percent is what I have in a broad-based basket of, you know, uh, cryptos and crypto equities. Um just because I want to track, you know, what's going on in the space. But this idea of spot coin ETF, I mean, I think probably by the time it gets launches is when we've probably seen the short-term top. And short-term, I, I'm talking about, you know, two, three, four years. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, you really want to own Bitcoin. We had, we had a trader at Morgan Stanley that left Morgan Stanley's ETF desk. Uh, and, and we laughed at him because it, it was $4 at the time and he was giving up his career working at, you know, one of the biggest Wall Street banks. And his argument was that it was 30, 40 cents, uh, you know, a year before that. Um, you know, Bitcoin's not 33,000. So I think by the time spot Bitcoin gets launched, you know, we probably saw, you know, the, the short-term high. Look, at the end of the day, like Fed funds going to 3 4%, that's really going to change the dynamics of these longer-duration assets. I think you can buy cryptocurrencies and you could buy a lot of asset classes, whether it's high yield bonds, whether it's, I don't know, some kind of venture capital stuff. But the minute you can get risk free at three, four percent, if we can get there, I think we should get there. You know, it's really going to change the name. So I like the conference. It was great to be there. I lost my voice. It was a lot of like stimulation, just seeing like, you know, hundreds of people that you kind of know. Um, there was a lot of ESG hype. There's always a lot of ESG hype. Um, I think one of the big themes was like, how do you protect your portfolio against rising rates and rising inflation? Um, that obviously we like hearing that because that's, that's the space that we, we've been playing in. Um, you know, active management, you know, that, that feel, it felt like a lot more like discussion about, you know, Morgan Stanley entering the space, a lot of big mutual fund conversions. So that was like a big theme. Um, 
a lot of good macro, you know, conversations, you know, uh, Jeffrey Gunlock on stage, you know, Richard Bernstein, he had a big panel about inflation. So, you know, that's the part that I care more about is the macro stuff as opposed to like, oh, one is a, you know, the next ESG ETF coming out. Um, but if I had to pick like one kind of contrarian indicator, you know, you kind of saw like big crypto firms being front and center in the hallway. And, you know, I've been going to this conference for over a decade and that didn't even exist. And now they were kind of front and center. So I generally look at the main hall as like, you know, the bigger that exhibit is, you know, kind of that, that's also an indication of like, have we reached the top of let's say. And what about the value trade? It, it, are people renting that trade or are they believers? I mean, because some of us think it could be 10 years, but I think there's a lot of people fighting the tape on that. Yeah. Well, I think what Jeremy said before is like, you know, the value trade tends to be underweight tech and growth and overweight, you know, like the, the, the sectors that give you cash flow up front. And right now it's all about getting your cash flows and you, you, investors are paying more of a premium to get those known cash flows up front. So I, I would say that like value trade was like well received, like people don't deny it. Um, you know, this year is the first year where you've had this like inverse correlation of value versus growth. The growth down, value up. Last year, both growth and value went up. But from my perspective, I, you know, and then, you know, value really started working in, call it November 2020, when the Pfizer vaccine came out, um, you know, after the election, obviously, that was really the first catalyst. So for me, value is going on to like, you know, well past two years now where it's doing well. But the inverse correlation versus growth, you know, it'll be interesting to see how long it stays that way. Um, but, you know, no doubt, like, you know, Kathy Wood speaking, given these, like, big astronomical return expectations for growth. And, you know, her panel was, like, well-received, right? Like, a lot of people listening. So it's kind of what I mentioned before about, like, how there wasn't a lot of commodity panels. Nobody wants to hear about, like, pork bellies and you know, corn futures, but they want to hear about crypto assets and, like, you know, future unprofitable tech hopes and dream stocks. So, Growth is still kind of front and center, and there's still a lot of assets in those unprofitable tech ETFs. But um, I, I, I look at that as good, uh, Jeff, because I think that that means value has a lot of legs. And you've got a great yeah. chart on Twitter. Maybe you can post this on Twitter again. Is like how value kind of can go on these like real long stretch runs where it goes, yeah. it does really well for like five to seven years. Yeah, 2000 to 2007 was the last time, but uh, I was barely a babe at that point. It's been how long it's been, Jeremy, sitting <laughs> with your value. The, um, you, you, you mentioned, John, the golden age of active management. Is, is, is that what you see? It's certainly sort of the star portfolio manager uh, with Kathy's getting all the press on her calls, the big performance, um, people focusing on how she – gives these, these out, well, you, what do you say, it's outlandish or not, these aggressive price targets on her baskets of, of, of stocks. Um, what's your sense on the activeness there? Well, you know, I, I actually want to give her credit because I think that she did bring active management back in vogue, um, the superstar, you know, kind of manager, and she wrapped it into ETF. I mean, nobody would have guessed that, you know, five to seven years ago. Um so, you know, she's obviously very talented and she gave like some really good returns. Um, so I, I do think that like she's given a path for other firms. I mean, our ETF is actively managed. You know, you obviously see a lot of big firms launching, entering into ETF space because, you know, the way we look at it and, you know, Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg is you know, talking about this a lot, but people's portfolio, and again, we have the evidence, people's portfolio is already loaded up in like, dirt cheap beta, whether it's stocks or bonds, but there's there's enough of this, like, I think Eric calls it like the hot sauce effect or like the shiny object. like, And we see that, Jeremy, because we inherit these portfolios. And we see that people want to have that, that little flavor in their portfolio. So I think she actually is the one that we should all thank active managers and firms that want to enter the space. And, you know, Morgan Stanley, the firm I used to work with, announced they're going to enter into ETF space. I mean, they're not going in there to, you know, launch uh, passive dirt cheap ETFs, right? And, you know, you all at Wisdom Tree have been in this space for, 
you know, and I'll credit you all because you've, you've been in here forever. Um, but I, I think that there's more room for active management. I think, you know, where we are now in this cycle of dirt, low rates, rates that are trending higher, kind of overextended valuations in the U.S. large cap index. You know, you've got the rest of the world that's trading cheap. Um, you know, it's funny because when I started my career, I'd go to these conferences and, you know, maybe 30% of it was be, would be filled with commodities as, as an asset class, commodities to own. Um, and then, you know, obviously commodities did nothing for 10, 15 years. Um, you know, but what's interesting for me is that, you know, right now, you know, is, is kind of where you want to be active, right? Because there's so much deflation risk in your model portfolio and you've got this opportunity. You, know, you talk about emerging markets, right? 20 years ago when I go to these conferences, there's, Commodities were dominating the conversation, and you'd buy emerging markets for growth. Right now, it's like, okay, you buy U.S. technology stocks for growth. Um, and it turns out that that's no longer the case. And my vantage point is that you could be buying energy stocks and industrial material stocks for growth in the next few years, and that this rotation out of, like, deflation sectors into inflation sectors is going to, you know, kind of uh, be, you know, a mean reversion thing. But it's just interesting now because emerging markets are cheap. Nobody wants to touch them. People fear China. They think that all emerging markets are China, but that's not the case. You know, Brazil is having a rock star year, the Brazilian ETF, yeah. and it's because obviously they're playing commodities and metals and mining stocks. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, so this all bodes well for active management. It's another lesson I take from it is you, you, sometimes you get early, you don't, you don't keep ETFs in the market long enough. Like we had some real return funds and commodity country equities and all these funds that, you know, we just didn't give it, you know, right now they would be having a moment. But unfortunately, you gave up on them um, because, you know, it was deflation for so long and nobody cared about these inflationary commodities. Um, but anyway, John, it's a pleasure to connect with you. Thanks so much for coming on Behind the Markets. Jeff Winninger, thank you for joining us for for the show. Uh, give our, our our producer Patty Hall thanks for coming with us on this holiday Good Friday weekend. DM Simpkins on the soundboard. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.